This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM. When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong. Well, thank you very much, Roger, and good morning again. Good morning, world, as we come your way from WGN West in Scottsdale, Arizona. And, Roger, I do have to mention one thing, because so many people in our listening audience come to Arizona and the Phoenix area, the valley, as we call it out here, and uh, there are some restaurants that have uh, been part of this market for a long time, including one with the Chicago connection. But for those people coming out, planning to go and have dinner at Don and Charlie's, the rib steakhouse and uh, known for their liver pate, and it's just a great restaurant filled with uh, Chicago sports memorabilia, and you'll find a lot of baseball players and their families going into Don and Charlie's. After 38 years in business, it is closing April 10th. No! Yes, so anyone coming out here planning to uh, enjoy food at Don and Charlie's better get out here before April 10th, because, and of course, there. As far as I know, there is no Charlie, but Don (laughs) is a member of the Carson family of Carson's Ribs in Chicago. Mm. And so it's been a popular place for Chicago people and any good food people. And uh, I was surprised. haven't talked to them to, to find out the reason, but April 10th will be the last time anybody can go to Don and Charlie's in Scottsdale, Phoenix, to uh, to have dinner. They're closing. Better so. start calling now. Make your reservations. <laughs> I think that has already happened. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll check in with you at 530 for news headlines, but uh, we do have quite a bit to talk about this morning. And I think I'll start with the uh, weather story because I got an email a couple of days ago from a listener in Nebraska And uh, that listener said, I'm not sure if people realize how bad it is right now for Nebraska. Whole towns are underwater. Weather reporters said evacuations have been ordered for 21 towns and communities. That's more than 60,000 people. Most of them also got hit by the blizzard a few weeks ago with no place to go. And they had to leave behind or couldn't get to their pets and livestock. And there are reports of herds of cattle running on highways, trying to survive the flooded pastures and fields along those highways. Not to mention the fact, and this is critical for cattle people, it is calving season. Calves will be the first to drown if they get into floodwaters and uh, the water levels rise. Or if the weather turns cold again, they would be the first to freeze to death. And uh, the listener went on to say people are either trapped in their houses or can't access them since uh, more than four days ago. It'll be billions of dollars in damages and losses across Nebraska. Please pray for those people who are suffering. 
And uh, there's an even bigger weather story on the damage being done in the major planting season or the major planting area for corn, soybeans, and also for wheat. And uh, from Minnesota, a story that uh, they have an unusually high number of barn roof collapses from the weight of the snow that is uh, creating a real problem for people who have to house animals in barns. The snow is so heavy that it's collapsing barn roofs. So a lot of weather to talk about, and uh, Max Armstrong standing by to check in on his highlights of National Agriculture Day. So um, we'll get to Max when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. It's 11 minutes after 5 back in the Midwest. It's 11 minutes after 3 in the morning in Scottsdale, Arizona. And uh, this week, Max Armstrong spent two or three days in Washington, D.C. and uh, joined in the Salute to Agriculture on National Agriculture Day on uh, Thursday. So uh, let's say good morning to Max right now. Happy National Agriculture Week, Orion, as yes, we were in Washington for a few days this week for the National Ag Day observance, which uh, took place on Thursday. As you know from your involvement through the years, it's an activity of the Agriculture Council of America, and that group is chaired this year by Indiana farm woman Isabella Chisholm. Isabella and her husband have a farm near Galveston, Indiana. I asked her, for one thing, uh, just who the Ag Council of America is. Well, we're a group that has been put together, or actually has come together, by people interested in agriculture and making sure that every American citizen is aware of agriculture and its importance to life. And there's this week, every year, at a designated day, correct? There is, and this year, National Ag Day is March 14th. Some may call that pie day, but I think that fits very well into ag day because every ingredient in a pie comes from agriculture. But then also it's an opportunity for us to celebrate agriculture. We talk and live agriculture 365 days a year. Why not take one day to celebrate and help people remember who we are, what we do, where their food comes from? Why are you in Washington? Why do you come here? Well, for Ag Day, I come here to lift up agriculture, to talk about farmers, what we do in the countryside, as well as all the agribusinesses related to farming, all of the economic factors related in each of the small communities to agriculture in general. Because without agriculture, you don't have certain agribusinesses, you don't have a need for dietitians, you don't have food, you don't have so many things. Why not celebrate it? There are some things that are really, really important to farmers. Of course, sufficient farm income is probably highest on the list, but there are other matters that matter too, are there not? Regulatory concerns, trade concerns? Yes, there are a lot of issues that are important. You said, you know, income. Absolutely. It's a business, just like any other business. But it's a business that also has very strong regulations, very tight regulations on a lot of things that we do. So we are always involved in making sure that our voice is heard about those regulations, which ones are needed and which ones are not needed. While the Ag Council of America is not involved in lobbying, you uh, representing Farm Bureau when you come here do wear that hat. How welcome are you when you walk into the office of a senator or a congressman? Most of the time, I'm very welcome. There are some times when you start visiting with some of our urban legislators that 
I wasn't welcome several years ago. But when we started talking about food insecurity and how farmers can help meet that need, we became more welcome and more reached out to, actually, as well. So, yes, I enjoy that part of my responsibility. Well, you know, you bring up an interesting point, that working with members of the House and Senate is a long-term program, is it not? You can't just come here when there's something that's a hot issue to you. It's a relationship that needs to be cultivated, am I correct? Absolutely. And I think too many times we come in for asks and we want this or we don't want them to do this, but I think it's very important that we always thank them when they do something the way that we would like to see it done or even just for giving us the time that day to visit. Isabella Chisholm, second vice president of the Indiana Farm Bureau Organization and this year chair of the Ag Council of America. Oh, I'm telling you, Orion, there were a lot of farmers in Washington this week. Isabella had a lot of company. There was a delegation from the Indiana Farm Bureau, also from the Illinois Farm Bureau. We saw several of our friends from that organization. The National Association of Conservation Districts represented there, too. Our longtime friend Gene Schmidt from LaPorte County, Indiana, past president of the NACD, was there. We ran into him in the hotel lobby. Many of these farmers were asking questions as they went up on the hill talking to their lawmakers, and many of the lawmakers are asking questions of the administration about these trade agreements, trade wars. And the trade specialist for the American Farm Bureau Federation, Dave Solomonson, talked with me. He said, yeah, the big question, the big question everybody's asking of the administration is... When? The when question is always the biggest question anymore. When is this going to end? And tech transfer, IP potential frag purchases that was mentioned but there's no timeline yet you know there's been a lot of talk well maybe the end of march they would get together president xi would go to mar-a-lago and there'd be some kind of a meeting that doesn't seem to be on the table anymore you know so they say well maybe in april you know maybe 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 one thing that happened was if you remember there was that tariff on the 200 billion dollars of chinese goods you know 10 percent Went to March 2nd, was delayed indefinitely. Well, that's still delayed. So I think that means there's still an active negotiating phase. Uh, Ambassador Lighthizer said they're talking almost daily with the Chinese. Didn't say there was in the plans any more bilateral trips. Like, he didn't say there'd be a delegation going to Beijing or a Chinese delegation coming to Washington anytime soon. But they're engaged, they're trying to work on the issues. So right now, it continues without a definite end date. Is it correct the biggest outstanding issues are not ag issues? Well, they aren't ag issues. The issues that really drove this are technology transfer, forced technology transfer, intellectual property protection. These have been constant issues with China for the last several years. They seem to have grown. U.S. business has kind of gotten tired of having to put up with this and really want some answers and some changes from China. China's embarked on what they call their 2025 initiative, trying to be more active and basically trying to be a world leader in new technology. So you're seeing a lot of friction on a lot of fronts. You've got all this discussion going on with that Huawei company and how they're doing 5G and all the rollout of that. So there are a lot of issues going on with the U.S. and China, uh, strategic issues, of course, in the South China Sea that are engaging our military. So lots of things going on. Of course, we would care the most about and want some resolution to is when China is going to get back in the market, when can U.S. agriculture, when can U.S. farmers and ranchers resume normal trade with China? Get rid of the tariffs, the U.S. from our side, the Chinese from their side, and resume normal trade. Well, we hope, again, we hope that happens sooner rather than later. That's our message to our government, and I, I know they're working a way at it, 
But if they're looking to craft a big deal and addressing a lot of these issues, that's going to take time. The real question is, will they come to a smaller deal? China agree to purchases, U.S. potentially roll back some tariffs, so China will roll back some tariffs, save these other really dense issues for continued negotiations. Um, on that, we wait and see. He's the trade specialist of the American Farm Bureau, Dave Salmonson, as we talked with him in his Washington office this week. It's the weekend for a couple of competing events here in northern Illinois. Well, they don't really directly compete, but they compete for the attention of people because they run at the same doggone time every year, I think. The Leland, Illinois Lions Club auction takes place today, 35th year for that, at uh, the town of Leland, out there between Salmonock and Earlville. I believe it's LaSalle County, barely. Uh, a little bit north of U.S. 34, a little west of Illinois 23, across from the fire station. They start at 9 this morning, selling a lot of farm machinery in that auction. And it's the weekend for the Sublet Illinois Farm Toy Show and Antique Tractor Show. 37th year. Don Dingus there would want me to remind you. They start at 9 this morning. And they have a show also tomorrow. The farm toys there on display and for sale. Sublet Illinois out on US 52 between Mendota and Dixon. So it's a big weekend. Hope you enjoy it. And happy National Agriculture Week, Orion. Well, and a happy National Agriculture Week back to you, too. It's been nice to have those activities taking place, maybe taking our mind off weather just a little bit. But let me talk to you about a couple of notes we received from Don Dingus at Sublet, Illinois. He said, thought you might be interested. John Deere is celebrating the 100th anniversary of manufacturing tractors this year. And they are featuring a Waterloo Boy tractor from Sublet, Illinois. You can read about it by going to John Deere Journal and then go to the article for the love of a Waterloo Boy. Tells how the tractor and the family owning it John Deere has been showing the tractor throughout the Midwest, but it will be in sublet on Sunday. That's tomorrow. It's owned by the Altus family of sublet, Illinois. And uh, if your kids want to go into a modern tractor, give them the chance to go into a tractor that worked a 100 years ago on farms across the U.S. and Just hope you have good weather, Don Dingus, for the activity in Sublet and for you folks with the Leland Lions Club in Leland, Illinois. We'll talk a little bit more about weather when we come back here on the Saturday Morning Show. Well, we talked about it earlier with uh, Roger and Matt and uh, more details on what's being called a bomb cyclone that happened this week hurled hurricane-force winds, sparked tornadoes, dumped heavy snow and rain across the plains and the western Midwest on its march across the United States this week. Heavy snow closed roads, buried cattle in the plains, while excessive rain flooded Midwest farm fields and swamp grain elevators. And Archer Daniels Midland Company forced to close its massive Columbus, Nebraska corn processing facility due to flooding. The plant, which produces corn-based ethanol biofuel, one of the largest in the world, 
And Chris Cuddy with ADM said, Right now, we do not have rail or road access to the facility because of the high water. And we do not have an estimate yet on when we will be able to resume normal operations. How soon the facility will reopen, he said, will depend on the extent of the damage and how quickly floodwaters recede. Rival agribusiness Cargill closed its plant in Council Bluffs, Iowa, and in Albion, Nebraska, grain elevators at least through the weekend due to flooding, according to its website. In Albion, flooding also closed an adjacent ethanol plant operated by Valero Energy. That's according to a Chicago grain trader. Nebraska State Patrol posted photos and video on Twitter of dozens of cattle stranded on tiny islands in the flood-swollen Platte River near Fremont, Nebraska. And the floods have posed challenges for ranchers as well as cattle feedlot operators who have already struggled through a long winter. Omaha, Nebraska recorded its snowiest winter on record this year. That's according to the High Plains Regional Climate Center. And Nebraska, of course, is the number two cattle-producing state after Texas. Alan Brugler, president of Omaha-based advisory service Brugler Marketing and Management, said, you've got stranded cattle and a lot of flooding in the feedlots. You've got just a sea of mud and it's affecting performance. Cattle are not gaining weight. They've got a lot of mud on them. It's definitely hurting the feedlot guys in terms of their efficiency. And further north uh, in South Dakota, grazing cattle were slammed by heavy snow, some cattle entirely buried. So that's what we're putting up with as we come into springtime in the year 2019. And floodwaters not only creating problems for plants, but also creating problems for movement of agricultural goods in the inland or the middle continent waterway system, Mississippi, Ohio, and uh, Missouri rivers, creating problems there for movement of barges getting uh, products down to the Gulf port at uh, New Orleans to then head out to the world. So it's a challenging spring and uh, concern now that with the snow still left to melt and rains uh, joining that snow melt water that uh, we could see delays in planting time across the Midwest They're already planting, of course, in Texas and other states in the southern regions, but uh, going to be a while maybe before you'll be able to move tractors and planters into the Midwest crop production area. I guess the lesson is don't fool with Mother Nature because she is going to do her thing, and she's certainly been doing her thing this year. Coming up in part two of the Saturday morning show, Samuelson says, uh, sharing some of your comments and ideas on what I should talk about as a result of my request a couple of weeks ago. And then Ray Brownfield, who is a veteran in farmland management and sales based in Oswego, Illinois, 
will join us to talk about what's all that land worth that you're getting ready to plant right now. We'll talk about what's happening in the farm sales market on part two of the show. Well, thank you very much, Roger. And uh, I'm, I'm not rubbing in the weather to anybody back in the Midwest, but in spring training country in Arizona right now, 66 degrees and getting up to 80 degrees by Monday. So if you're coming to uh, this part of the world to enjoy some early baseball, you'll have some pretty good weather to do it uh, starting, well, it's fine now, but it'll be even better starting on Monday. It's time for Samuelson Says, and uh, actually, you folks have helped write Samuelson Says for this week, and we'll get to that right after this. You may recall a couple of weeks ago on Samuelson Says, I challenged you to share with me what you would talk about if you had a radio, newspaper, or television editorial like Samuelson Says. And I received a lot of response, and I thank you for that. I won't have time to share all of them, but I will share a few this week. This one that says, my wife and I have a small 200-acre ranch west of Fort Worth. We are independent. By that I mean we do our prairie restoration, cattle operation, and wildlife operation without any government assistance. I do utilize education opportunities. I read everything I can about prairie restoration, and we are always trying to improve our place. I feel that small family operations are so important to making a difference. All the small farms and ranches taken collectively make us the biggest ranch in the United States, and we are doing good for America. Then there was another email that gave me several topics to talk about. Let me share just a few of them. Number one, the outrageously high price of seed. We all know the reasons the reps give us, but address the subject from a farmer's perspective. Informative article about commercial fertilizer, where it is made and how it is made. And organic farming. Is it really better? Why do they get higher crop insurance payments? And then the one that I really like, a gentleman sent an email saying, I wish you would talk about grain drying. My company makes and sells grain dryers and grain bins, and I think you should talk about them on Samuelson Says. Well, I had to tell him that is called a commercial in print and broadcast. And one of our salesmen would be happy to call on him to talk about rates and schedules. We will be sharing more of your thoughts in upcoming weeks here on Samuelson Says. But for now, those are your thoughts and my thoughts on Samuelson Says. And it's a presentation of Tribune Radio Networks. Constant conversation subject in rural America at the coffee shops. Is farmland selling as well as it did a year or two or three ago? And uh, what do we do if we are going to sell our farm? Well, we'll talk about that coming up here when Ray Brownfield of Land Pro LLC joins us here on 
the Saturday morning show. As we approach the planting season in the northern part of the country, in the Midwest, it's already underway in some of the southern states. What about the value of the land that you'll be planting your crops in in 2019? Whenever we talk land values, we talk to Ray Brownfield of LandPro LLC, based in Oswego, Illinois. He's on the line with us now, and I guess the first question, uh, is there still a big demand for good farmland, Ray? Orion, there is a good demand for high-quality farmland, and I think there always will be. However, uh, it's become a more cautious market with the uncertainty in the commodity business today, the, the tariff situation we hope will be resolved. I'm not sure kind of how much impact that will have, uh, but we hope it's positive. Uh, but the, the, the high-quality land, uh, particularly if it's next door to an adjoining landowner who has always wanted that piece of ground, uh, it is in high demand and will be purchased at probably a little more than market price just because it's near where they want it to be. Uh, with that said, uh, we're seeing uh, still a very cautious market. Uh, I would say very regional specific in each by township, or it, it's really, really has gotten very discerning as to what people really decide they want to buy and maybe what they don't want to buy at this point in time. Are farmers the most interested buyers, or are investors uh, taking a hard look at it too? Farmers. Farm landowners are continuing to be, I think, the most interested because that's their business. That's what they do. That's what they hope to do for their lifetimes, as well as their children and grandchildren. So it's really a long-term look as to land ownership. Uh, investors are certainly there, and in a few cases, they are there to purchase when there are opportunities. But they're not the high. They're not the high end of the marketplace. They're not leading the market by any means. What about recreational land? Is that holding up in value? Depends on the area. Uh, it's better than it was. There's a little more, I think, discretionary income that's coming back to the marketplace from those of them who uh, want to hunt and fish and just have a little private piece of uh, acreage out in the country. Anywhere near Chicago or any big metropolitan area, there seems to be uh, people looking for small acreages, not big, but small acreages in the maybe the five to ten acre level, and uh, they're willing to pay uh, a reasonable price, uh, not crazy by any means, because it's not income producing. Usually, it's strictly for recreational use. So, you know, in the bracket here in the Midwest, maybe in the the three to four thousand dollar an acre bracket, maybe five at the very very most. When I was a kid growing up on the dairy farm in Wisconsin, this is the time of year when you'd walk into the bank and the walls would be plastered with auction sales notices. Is this still the time when there is a lot of land changing hands? This is the time of the year when we're beginning to see um, less auction activity because we're getting closer to planting season, and so that does slow the market down because those of whom plan to sell their ground would probably just as soon have a lease now in effect and then maybe go to the market next fall. Uh, so generally the the high volume of auctions occurs anywhere from November through February and into March to some degree, but we are beginning to to get to a lower end of that cycle as we get into the spring area. 
And is an auction still the popular way to sell farmland these days? It is if it's high quality. Uh, we're seeing some areas where the lesser quality, lower productivity index, fertility, uh, maybe poor drainage, just some what we call uh, bumps on the pumpkin, so to speak. Uh, there's some auctions that have not done well. Uh, in fact, is they've no-sailed, and that's not a good thing because that sets uh, kind of the climate for the, the pricing in that area because people know what it was. So that's that's an area that we are a little bit careful about right now of taking lesser quality properties to the auction market. But as I said earlier, if they're really good and they're next to some farmers who it's known do want that piece of ground, that's probably still the way to go to maximize your price opportunity. So, Ray, if we have somebody listening who is thinking about selling the farm, give us some advice on what they should be doing at the moment. Well, that's a really great question because now we're entering into the season where most farms are being leased and, and, and probably should be as we get closer to April 1st. And so one needs to understand that that's probably that's an obligation for this crop year when the property does go on the market in case they're wanting to sell at this point in time. So that's not to say it can't be done. Uh, the new buyer would assume that lease uh, in, in when they closed, and it's sometimes if it's a cash rental lease, it's prorated. I would say that probably at this time of the year, uh, for the seller, make sure you've got a really good lease. I would say make sure that the terms and conditions are so that the lease does terminate at the end of harvest or at the end of the year. So, therefore, if a new buyer comes in and wants to take possession, they can take possession after harvest close or before the first of the year because traditionally a lot of leases go into the end of February. I don't think that's a very good plan, to be honest with you, for a seller to get into that mode. Uh, I would say also make sure that uh, the farm is looking good, that you have a pretty good idea of what are your price thresholds. It's not a bad idea to look to a professional broker uh, to give an idea of what should the market be because sometimes people really don't know if they're outside the area. So it's, it's a good thing just to get an idea. What, what is the market and uh, what's the best way to get that sold in a period of time that makes sense to everybody? How important is the house and the set of buildings on the farm? Is that as, as important as it always was? Well, it depends. Most buyers today, especially if it's a smaller acreage, would prefer not to have the house abilities because it's really an upkeep issue. There's increased real estate taxes and insurance liability, and renting houses is really something that many of us prefer not to do. It just takes a lot of time, and chasing rent is not something we really all like to do. So actually, if there is a house and buildings on the property, they have to be of, uh, say, the quality that they need to be sold off to adjoining people in town or somebody that wants to add to their, uh, their, their opportunities for their kids or somebody to live out there. Uh, that's maybe an opportunity. But uh, lots of times we see the house and buildings in some cases are terribly run down, and really they're a detriment to the sale of the property because it's what we call cost to cure. The new buyers really are thinking about getting rid of them. Well, today the zoning issues in many counties are such that you just don't burn the house down anymore like you used to. You have to take it down and have it hauled to a special dump. So it's really can be an interesting experience. <laughs> What about interest rates as far as farmland is concerned? Moving much? 
No, interest rates look like they're they're topping out at this point in time. Uh, but I will say, in talking to many ag credit people in the industry today, uh, I think they're doing a good job. I think they're not overextending themselves like we saw happen in the 80s. I think that's a good thing for agriculture. I do see that... Um, that there's some farmers of whom may be a little stretched at this point, although we think it's in better shape than what the Wall Street Journal would suggest and maybe other publications we've seen out there. We don't see the, the major foreclosure issues that maybe are being publicized. We just haven't seen that. Not to say there aren't some out there. There may well be, and there always will be probably some. But for the most part, interest rates are holding pretty good. Uh, people are okay with that. I think what I'm hearing from the Federal Reserve it looks like they're going to stay stable this year. And, and so that's a that's a good thing for all of us. So then let's take a look at cash rent. What is happening to those prices? You know, that was really a kind of a good experience for us in the management and brokerage business this year. Uh, as we went out to negotiate rents for 2019, uh, we really didn't see any great resistance to holding where they were in 18. I think it helped us to have some Overall, not everywhere, but pretty good crop yields in 18, and also that added dollar 65 bonus, if you will, on the soybean payment really helped out a lot. And I think that with that in in the pocketbook of the farm operator, it enabled him to say, "Okay, we'll do this another year. We'll 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 we'll, we'll stay where we're at." And so we really, on the properties we work with, and I think many of our people that work in the industry didn't feel any great resistance. Obviously, we're not as high as we were three or four years ago. We have come down several years ago to an area which we hope makes more sense where people can make some money, but the owners hope they're being rewarded as they should be. And is there anything major to consider if you're looking at getting out of the farm? Would you want a cash rent or would you want to sell? <laughs> well, it depends on what your, your ownership objectives are. You know, um, I would say that what we're seeing on the sales side is that, and we'll continue to see this with the baby boomers and people in this age bracket that are at the age level where they've inherited uh, the property maybe years ago or maybe not so long ago, and the undivided interests uh, are such that it's not always fun to share. And so they get to age level, it's, they think it's, and I think they're probably right, it's time to sell and take the cash and then distribute that cash onto their kids or grandkids as they wish. It's easier to distribute cash into this land, to be quite honest with you. On the other hand, it's a nice long-term investment for folks, and I do think that some people, through a good estate planning, would prefer to generation skip. And so that farm, as is the case in my home farm, I've generation skipped, so my grandkids will have that farm, and then they can do as they wish. But they're only... Uh, 13 and 10 years old, so hopefully that's going to be a long time away. I think we see both sides of that, or it depends on what the family's objectives are. And final question, Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue and his predecessors have always talked about their concern over the aging of the American farmer. How can we get young people involved if they don't have parents who are going to transfer the farm? Is there any other way today that a young person could buy a farm? There, there is, and we have had several real estate transactions in our company recently for the Farm Service Administration, USDA, you know, does have a program at a very low interest rate that has a cap, obviously, on how much they can borrow, but 
younger farmers, and I've seen several, has started out with the 40 acres opportunity and to to get into the farming business at least to start adding equity to their to their to their balance sheet, if you will, which I think is always a good thing. So there is that out there. With the government shutdown, it caused us some problems for a while, and they're still catching up with all that and processing those loans. But those are opportunities. I think what we're seeing as well in our business is younger farmers are working with other people they've targeted that maybe don't have kids or kids that are not interested in farming and trying to get next to them and beginning some kind of a, uh, a partnership, if you will, that where they can begin to get into the business, bring some money in, but certainly their capital labor. And so we're seeing a little more of that as well. And in fact, I'm really pleased to say that we personally in our operation, I would say have 80% of operations under lease right now have and actually have younger farmers come in with dad or grandpa or uncle. And that it, it really makes me feel good to see that. And your company, Land Pro, works all across the country or basically the Midwest? We're based with the Midwest right now. We do have associates across the United States that are accredited farm managers or accredited land consultants who we know quite well that we can always work with and, and highly professional folks. So we can always work through services with those folks. But Illinois primarily and Iowa and Indiana are the areas in which we work in Illinois specifically. We cover the upper two-thirds of the state and, and do a tremendous amount of activity here. Ray, can't thank you enough. Every time you visit with us, uh, we learn something interesting about the land business, and you've been doing it a long time, doing it very well. Ray Brownfield, Land Pro LLC in Oswego, Illinois. Well, our next big report from USDA for this year's planting season will be uh, released the end of the month. It's the planting intention survey. But ahead of that survey and the results by USDA, we get quite a few private firms that conduct their own survey, like the folks at Allendale in McHenry, Illinois. You hear folks from that company often here on the Saturday morning show, and they conduct every spring a survey of farmers, traders, and analysts to get some idea of what we'll be planting. The survey this year, 29 states conducted between February 25th and March 8th. And here are the numbers. Farmers expected to plant 91.4 million acres of corn this year and 84.2 million acres of soybeans this year. Projected corn planting would fall below the latest USDA forecast for 92 million, but above the 89.1 million planted in 2018. And projected soybean plantings would fall below the latest USDA forecast for 85 million acres and also below the 89.1 million acres planted in 2018. So uh, that's the first of several estimates on planted acreage, but the USDA estimate will come at the end of the month. And a quick look at market activity yesterday, the big news yesterday at the uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, where hog futures rallied to a five-month high, closing at their daily trading limit, 
thanks to improving export prospects due to a sharp reduction in China's domestic supplies. China's pig herd dropped 16.5% in February uh, compared to the previous year because of the African swine fever that is sweeping the country. And so we were up the $3 daily limit in May, June, October, and July, August lean hog contracts at the Merck yesterday. And cattle also fairly strong. And some of that because of the weather that's holding back weight gains on many cattle in the heart of the uh, cattle raising country. And as a result, we saw the June live cattle contract up a dollar sixty-five cents a hundred weight in the trade yesterday. So, but that up limit move for hogs, big news in the marketplace at the Chicago Board of Trade. The uh, May wheat contract up seven and a half cents a bushel. May corn up two and three quarters cents a bushel, and May soybeans up ten and three quarters cents a bushel in the trade yesterday to end the trading week. And we're at the point where we have to end the Saturday morning show. Happens every week about this time. We run out of time, and that has happened now. As always, I thank Bob Ferguson for his engineering production help, and thank all of you for listening. Because uh, if you weren't, then we wouldn't have much to do on the air here from the standpoint of agriculture. So thank you very much for that. And uh, right now we're going to say farewell. Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720. 